I guess there's some technical difficulties. I didn't get Ken's teaching last week recorded, but he did share his transcript with me. And it was such a good teaching that I decided, hey, let's just teach the whole thing again. Um, <laughs> I'm still going to read it, so get ready now. Uh, but it is, it is, you know, a lot of people worry about, and we've talked about it consistently, I don't think repetition is such a bad thing because how many of you can give me three points from Ken's sermon last week? You know, right? And it's, it's not a shame to any of us. It's just we have very limited brains. And so to, to come back to some of these truths, it's never, I'm never scared to do it if you're like, oh, that seemed repetitious. Uh, well, I, there's different angles. And obviously just even these, uh, sh- these words from Jesus here, Obviously, there's so much to it that we could probably, and John Piper is a good example of it, you could probably go weeks and weeks and weeks just on one passage of what Jesus is saying. What is going on here? What's the context? What does this mean for our lives? What, when you get different dynamics, does that change things? And so we are back in Luke chapter 7, a uh, nice easy pace. I remember in Romans, I don't know if anyone said it specifically, but kind of heard rumors of rumors that they're like, hey, you and Ken are going pretty slow through Romans. And so my question is like, so what are you waiting to get to? <laughs> like, Because after Romans, it's something else. And it's like, it all to me is like, ah, I'm not really too worried about our pace through Luke. But if you have good reason why like, no, this is, this is not the right pace for going through the Gospel of Luke. I mean, we are happy to accept that feedback and say, okay, why do you think that is? Because we are not perfect. Um, and I and know like so much uh, how far short I fall. Um, even in the calling, not, you know, like, okay, of Christ and God's holy standard, yes. But there's a standard for church leadership and particular teachers of the word. And, you know, like, I am really feeling called to that standard. But if you had to judge me with right judgment on that standard, it's like, hey, you have a man who's falling short. Um, that does, though, earnestly desire to hit that standard. And I know I, I can would say the same. Uh, so appreciate your graciousness as we just, even like the, the choices our leadership faces in this church. You know, do we end up with a full-time pastor, a, a paid position, a different leadership or not? And do we end up with a different building? What are the implications of that? Ultimately, what gives God his framework to be glorified in our community? Um, that's what we're after, and we make mistakes along the way, but then God uses those mistakes. Um, but absolutely trying with all that is within me, and I know Ken as well, to correctly handle the words of truth, including here in the Gospel of Luke. So I want to test you on something. Um, I'm going to say something or make a sound, and I want you not to say it out loud yet, but see if it triggers anything in you. All right, so here it is. Here's... Do you have something in your head? Does anyone not? <laughs> okay, so this time you can finish it. Ready? Here's. Yeah, exactly. And so that is probably one of the most recognizable like lead-ins. Um, and it, I don't know when the Tonight Show started with Johnny Carson, uh, but Ed, Ed McMahon had that famous that famous line. And then it's been like exploded in pop culture that like. So many movies, like this, there's a, a Stephen King book, uh, The Shining, that they quote that line, and so then that gets quoted, and you're like, 
so much so that you could see it in a pop culture reference and you not even think about the, the origins of it, you know, because it was a lead-in. And so that lead-in, all, all I need to go is he, and like already your mind goes somewhere, right? And that's not the primary point because we've talked about John the Baptist, you know, probably four times already through the Gospel of Luke. But you wonder, like, why was he even necessary? You know, couldn't Jesus have just stepped onto the scene? But there was something about the preparation, the priming of our hearts, that there was a purpose that God had for, for one to come before and prepare the way for Jesus. And this is where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, with considering what John had done and why it was necessary. And here, we get to talk about John again. Um, We talked about him in Luke chapter uh, 3, but here we're back again with John the Baptist. Um, That's some Bible project artwork there. I really uh, think there's some of the prettiest images of Scripture. But what Jesus is going to do here is actually kind of turn it instead of like, what was John's purpose and then kind of turning questions back to his listeners including us of what did what does this say about you you know what's happening to you as you consider what John was doing and what I am doing so with that if you have a scripture in front of you Luke chapter 7 verses 24 through 35 I would love it if someone would be willing to read I'll give you 30 seconds if someone wants to jump right into it. If not, I will. Erica? So, Jesus posing the question there in verse 24. What? He said, all right, let's talk about this. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't wait for an answer there because then he moves on. Obviously not. Uh, And you, we don't get a lot of details on what happened to make John so popular. But he had the respect not only of common folk, it sounds like he also had some respect of the teachers of the law uh, at this time. And we don't know, like, how did a man that was out in the wilderness gain such a following? What were some of the triggers that we don't have recorded in Scripture that allowed him to even get any attention at all? And, and we see that attention was actually really powerful because... It says later in uh, the Gospels that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were actually kind of bound by John's popularity because they knew um, they accused John the Baptist of being of, of saying, "Oh, you're just crazy. You're not a prophet." The people would revolt. Um, they were afraid of the people. What they thought of John. So he built such a following. And so Jesus is questioning, like, "Hey, why was everyone so attracted to him? What was happening there? What was really going on?" And his first question was like, hey, is it just because this was the flavor of the day? How often in your life have you said, oh, this was really exciting and everyone was excited about it, but then a month later or a year later, like that idea is completely forgotten. Uh, Flavor of the week, I think, is usually what they say that. Like, oh yeah, you're the flavor of the week. And we talk about in in Solomon, uh, made it clear in Ecclesiastes, like, hey, fame is so fleeting and they said that in Roman days, in, in Jesus' day, when Rome would conquer uh, a new territory, they'd allow that, the conquering general or commander to actually go in a parade and be honored for like, yes, I've done my job, look, I've taken this territory, this region, and he'd have a chariot. But they said they'd actually put a slave on the chariot with, with him, that commander, 
to whisper, fame is fleeting. Fame is fleeting. Like, glory only lasts for a moment. To make sure that commander wasn't, that wasn't his end goal there. Like, look what I've done, and now I've seen, it's like, this is just a journey along the way. Because fame, glory, it's all fleeting. And you can see the wind, is just how quickly it goes. Like, and you felt it this morning, we'll feel it outside, it's going to be a windy day. And just like, those, that wind gust is here and it's gone. And then you're just waiting for the next one and that wind keeps blowing. I mean, it keeps moving through. It doesn't sit. There's no reality to it that you can sit with and will be lasting. And it's a big part of what we're searching for, right? We are searching for something that doesn't blow away. Because if you tell me um, that, like, right now I have my three kids and my wife here with me, and they're all healthy and well at this, this moment. But, and I'm very thankful and happy to enjoy their presence. But if you told me that later this week they would suffer a tragedy, even today gets soured. Even though I have them today, it's not happening yet, but later in the week, something terrible is going to happen. Even today, all of a sudden, it's soured. Because we aren't, we aren't just in this moment. Like We are always thinking about the longevity, the consistency, the everlasting nature of our joy or our pain. And why I think Jesus is touching on this, and this is the point when I read the scripture, um, it really hit me because I think this is a real temptation for the church and all humanity right now, is to not get blown by the wind. I don't think that's the primary point here. I think Jesus is making other points, including in the next verse uh, in 25. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So there's a whole teaching there, like specifically about materialism. And what does it mean? And how are we doing that? And, and Jesus spoke to that about, hey, don't judge on outward appearances, but judge with right judgment. We've touched on that. That's not so much where I'd like uh, to go today. I, I do think there's two points primarily. And this first, I really, the reed's blown in the wind. And then secondly is to touch on what Ken, you know, was unpacking last week. Of what are our disappointments based on not just our disappointments and how God is or is not working, but based on what's beneath that, our expectations of God. And Ken had talked about that this week as well. So here we sit. I, I believe that it's good to bring in current events uh, because this is the triggers. We talked about triggers in our help When Helping Hurt book, small group last night. And those triggers, like I can bring up something to you that it's just not that important. And it probably, you probably won't listen that well just because it's out of sight, out of mind. But one thing about current events and these winds that are blowing through, like, hey, we're all aware of them. We share it in common that we're thinking about it. And so there's hardly a human in the United States who isn't well aware of the shooting that happened in Texas this week, right? And so I had to actually change pictures because as I was putting this together and, and Sarah and the kids were visiting my office and there's plenty of pictures where you see the anguish of the children who who are survivors now of this shooting. And I was like, okay, probably beyond the scope of what we need to get the point here. Um, however, I don't think it would have been completely inappropriate because the reality is this was an absolutely horrifying event. The news made you your stomach turn at least, right? But can you imagine if you're closer to it? Can you imagine if you're a part of these families or this neighborhood? Can you imagine if you're one of the survivors? Like, they're still in shock and probably will be for many days to come. And the reason it's important to imagine this is because what separates you from them? 
oh, thank you, God, in your goodness that I didn't suffer this heartbreak. But death awaits us all. So it's more of just the timing of when this heartbreak ends up hitting us, right? And we talked about in Sunday school this morning, some of us have already experienced some of the similar heartbreak. And the reality is, we, you know, Katie, we were reflecting of like, okay, so our kids are out in the world. The reality is we can take our odds from like 99.9% this far really won't happen in our community to 99.999%. And the way we do that is we don't let them out of our homes at all. Keep your doors and everything bolted and keep your own ammunition. And then, yeah, it's likely not going to happen. But what does life look like then? Are there any downsides to that? Absolutely. There's trade-offs all around. Can we protect ourselves from risk? Um, and so there's so many questions with this. This is real heartbreak and tragedy. I'm not surprised at all that this is the news this week. I would be more shocked if this does not happen again within the next four years. Probably two, if you're saying, what are the over and under, like, how likely? I would say we'll get another one like this within two years because I think the pandemic has heightened some of those causes that would cause someone to do such things. So I would say there's more odds, but this isn't the first time either, right? Um, this is uh, 2000 and... 12, uh, Pennsylvania, yeah, and so Lancaster County, uh, a different set of circumstances, same heartbreak, pain, and death. You have Sandy Hook, you have uh, Parkland, Florida, there, there's, there's a whole list, and, and yet, and people are, you know, all of a sudden talking about what's the realities in America, but America's homicide rate is still middle of the pack in the countries of the world. Right? So there's some facts they're bringing. Some are more convenient facts or some are less convenient, depending on what you want to happen. The reality is you can talk to your blue in the face and all of a sudden, what have you actually done? What's happening, though, on social media, news media, is something that I really despise, but I'm as probably guilty of as anyone, is what's called and known as virtue signaling. <laughs> Saying, I demand something be done. Okay? And that's what you get all right, let's have a debate about guns and rights with guns. And I think it's important that you have those debates. Um, but I think it's important you have them humbly. And what's going to happen, though, and my main point with this, is that this is the flavor of the week. And it's right to be on our minds. This is absolutely right to be on our minds. We, we should not think about it. However, how real are these debates how everlasting are these debates when, in reality, people won't have this on their radar here in about four weeks? Like, most people will say, what was the news headline on May 23rd? And they will have forgotten exactly. They probably can say, oh, yeah, there was a big shooting. Just like right now in the news headlines isn't prescription drugs, but it's a huge problem. In fact, it's probably causing a lot more pain directly in your life um, in our communities than any gun is right now. But we're not debating. But something will trigger, and all of a sudden we will be. And now it's important to me, and I have a, a thought on how it should go. Uh, anybody know what this place is? That's in the news headlines, but now is off? Like, that's Gitmo. That's Guantanamo Bay. Really big news headline, and oh, I have an opinion on how that should go. And then it drifts to the side. You know? And uh, anybody know who that is? 
Terry Schiavo from 2006. And her story goes all the way back to 1990 um, before she passed away. And the whole story, and I remember it was like a long time dedicated to the news headlines. Um, and, you know, I was able to think of it because the world has produced a podcast, like digging into the, some of the details with that debate in her life and what it means for uh, end-of-life treatments and life-sustaining procedures. But those are important questions that, you know, I can go out and make a statement about guns right now, but some of these things are even more meaningful. You've heard me talk about it before. Like, we want to be so quick to stand for something but in reality, how fleeting is even our emotions and our passions for these things and our cause for justice when there is never, ever a lack of things to break your heart about a lack of justice in our world. And you can go and talk about it halfway across the country in Texas and be really upset, which I don't blame you for. But the question is always like, hey, if this isn't just a flavor in the wind, how come we're not equally heartbreaking, heartbroken by all of the pain and suffering right in Andrew County at this moment, that this afternoon, you could literally walk probably yards from your own bed and find a situation as heartbreaking as what happened in Texas this week. And so I, I do challenge a little bit myself. Like, why, do I feel such, why do I feel such fervor for this particular thing? Um, is, it, is it just a wind that's blowing through and ultimately pointing to my own self as opposed to the very nature, the very truths and foundations of what will make life full and everlasting. And I think when we can talk about that, then we can find great solutions to all of those pains and troubles of our world, including this could happen to our children, right? This could happen. It is not. And would it change your view of God? Do you think those families are challenged by their view of who God is this week? I would say yes, and I'd say we would be too. But do I want pending tragedy in my own life to be able to change my view of God? I want it to make more truthful, but as far as him being just, I don't want to doubt God's justice just because I'm a little bit closer to tragedy or a little bit further away. I want my view of God to be consistent with his word no matter what I experience here on this earth. Um, now, I do think it can help me see realities, but that's, it's a challenge. So we go back into uh, Luke chapter five and we see Jesus on the Beatitudes in Luke chapter six, talking about blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. So Jesus asked these questions. What did you go out to see when you saw John? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Again, it's rhetorical. He doesn't even wait for an answer. So he says, so then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, kind of a rhetorical question. Like, this wasn't about the flavor of the week with John. This wasn't about uh, material things that we desire. What did you go out to see? Why were you all so attracted to John the Baptist? Why are we, why are you here at church today? Why are you or maybe you're not, but I hope, why are you eager to ask good questions about God? Why are you eager to read or find out what he said about current events or things in this world? What is happening? And Jesus says, what did you go out to see then? A prophet? Yes, he says. I tell you, and more than a prophet. What I hear Jesus saying to the people is here, John was so popular and you desired him 
Because you know, in your heart of hearts, the news events of the day, the flavors of the week, uh, material things like soft clothing or even bread, they haven't satisfied you. So what, why are you so hungry for something? It's because you know you're searching for something that does last. And so when you heard a new teaching in the wilderness, something that said the status quo is about to be disrupted, you were interested. Not because he was given free handouts or because it was just popular. It's because you knew in your heart you were searching for something that's real, that wouldn't just fade in your hands, that wouldn't be blown away from one minute to the next. Something that's real. Something's not dependent upon your best friend not betraying you or your wife doing everything or your husband doing everything you expected them to do. Something that lasts and that is deeper. And so when John the Baptist was presenting these messages of repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, it got people's attention. Not because it was flavor of the week, not because it was a material blessings, but because it was alluding to something that was real. But those people who went out there had the benefit of something that maybe we don't share. Jesus alluded to it in, I think, the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. A, a ultimate desire within that says something's not okay. If you're comfortable, are you too eager to change? Not typically. If something's working, they say, don't, don't change what's working, Right? The only time we're open to change is when we're clear it's not working. It is not working. I am sick. I need a doctor. I need something. And Jesus, it seems to me, is saying that this is the children of Israel. This is us. This is our primary goal. Isn't to fix ourselves, but to come and grasp and believe fully it's not working with my own devices, with my own desire. It's not working. It's a mess. Like, I'll have something for a little while, and then I'll look, and it has dissipated in my grasp. And I think that's exactly what, one of, and we talked about the Beatitudes, one of the main points of the Beatitudes. Um, in Matthew, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In Psalm uh, David, in Psalm 63, um, it says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And so we think of David and we think about his terrible, terrible mistakes. And it seems like he should have been punished and persecuted. And he should get what he deserves with what he did. If you're not familiar with the stories of David, I'll tell you. Um, but instead he's honored in scripture as a man after God's own heart. And I believe this is the heart that's honored. Not his actions, but his heart. Um, of genuinely and earnestly seeking God. And then Jesus said, um, and recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. So, why do we care about what Jesus said? Because it's the culturally appropriate thing to do? It's what my family does? Or is it because we have a real hunger and need for something that lasts? And can our desire for him endure even if we remain rich and remain well-fed, if our families stay intact? Um, I think it's hard. I think that's why 
Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man. It's as hard as a camel entering through the eye of a needle for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So that leads us to, oh, one more scripture I wanted to share with you. Um, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You're something deeper. You're searching for something more. You're not searching for a convenient way to get water from a well. You're searching for a satisfaction in the heart of hearts that will last forever. So this is a question I've posed to you before, to pose to myself, hopefully a lot, whenever I'm disappointed. I'm disappointing God, disappointing others. What do I expect? What do you expect? I'm not asking that of myself because I think my expectations like, oh, you better get them in line. But I think if we start there, what do I expect? Then we can make a lot better and we can learn a lot more about judging with right judgment of what God's doing when we can consider like the starting place as opposed to like, I'm so disappointed. Like, what do I do with my disappointment? Like, all right, what did I expect? It's kind of going back a layer, going back a step. What did I expect? Did I expect tragedy not to hit? Did I expect rich material blessings? Did I expect the world to act how I wanted it to? Did I expect God to bring justice immediate? Or did I expect him to take a different timeline than me? Um, What do I expect? Where do our expectations come from? How do you know? So you have like, okay, here's what I expect. The next question is, why? Why do you expect that? Um, And you find like your expectations are rooted in something right? We've talked about our own disappointments before. Uh, where, where did those things come from? It probably came a lot from each other. Like our families, our communities, like things kind of stay in motion. We don't, we, we learn from each other what our parents did, will likely do, and it kind of builds on that. So that's a large part of our expectations are set. Media is setting our expectations, and research says more than we care to admit. Um, the images we listen to and watch why? What do we expect? Where does it come from? It's worth examining. Um, and I think just that examination alone is a lot better than me telling you like, oh, here's what scripture says, the answer to expectations. Because again, you don't listen that well to me. And that's no shame on you. That's just, I don't listen that well to me either or any teacher. Uh, but all of a sudden, when I have a trigger in my life, um, if I examine my own assumptions and realize it's not working now, I take ownership of like, I'm going to go out and find it. I'm going to get hungry enough to go search and seek and find. And that's when maybe you do listen to me in a new way. Or you take a recording of Ken's from three years ago and you listen to it again. You're like, now it is meaningful. Um, So those are the things that I think really let the spirit move in us. When we start with examination of ourselves and not being afraid to ask questions. Um, And in that, realizing that God is not the one changing, but we are the ones that are, are dynamically having different perspectives and changing pretty quickly. God does not change. It says in Malachi, God's words directly from Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, uh, O children of God, are not consumed. In Numbers, it says, God is not man, which, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And in Psalm 102, 
It says, of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Has anyone else's view of God changed in your lifetime? Maybe even the last few years? Maybe even the last few weeks? Um, is that about God changing, or is that about us changing? And I would say, it, it. Scripture makes pretty clear, that's about us having experiences that ends up changing how we perceive God. And I think that journey will probably not end until much later in the story. And who knows, maybe it will never. Even when we're in God's very presence, I'd imagine that we still won't have full capabilities to understand fully his ways. So perhaps this is always about getting to know our creator and our father better. Like it's a never ending, which can kind of take the pressure off of us. Because when we're examining and learning about God, we can say, oh boy, I've, I've not come very far. Well, as long as you've come, like that's all that matters because it will never end. It's an endless, literally endless journey. Um, and another pressure to take off is that Jesus and John, two characters in this part of scripture, both came to God with expectations that were unmet. John the Baptist in this very scripture says, is this really what we were expecting Jesus, are you the one, or is there something else happening here? And Jesus answers those fears. When did Jesus do it? In the garden, when Jesus cries out to the Father, like, hey, if there's any other way, because the expectation, I think Jesus knew there would be pain, but it seems that even Jesus was a bit shocked by the amount of pain that the separation and the weight of sin and bearing down on him created. And so he says, if there's other ways, like, God, let's, let's try those. Father, let's try those. And so to be able to have expectations and have them and then come to God, Ken pointed out, seems to be a very natural and good thing. Even our Savior had a moment of like, all right, what's going on here? Um, and it seems that that probably extended beyond garden and crucifixion experience because even the desert experience when he goes out into the wilderness seems to have the illusion that Satan had the, uh, the belief that Jesus could be swayed from his plan, right? That, that, hey, this is what the Father is doing, but Jesus, what, can't you do that another way? And it seemed that Jesus had to actually use his own power to defy Satan as opposed to like, it's not, why are you even talking to me? It doesn't affect me at all. But it looked like Jesus had to rely on strength because he was exhausted at the end of that temptation experience. And that temptation wouldn't be real. He had to do his own wrestling with his father, like to wrestle with the father's lives. Good. So I would say, don't be afraid to admit. On the flip side of that, you have like one of us come to you and say, "I'm struggling." It's really difficult not to be judgmental, right? Like, whoa, you're struggling with that. That that says a lot about you. Goodness, as opposed to like. I'm so glad you would be willing to talk to me about this. And you may not speak those words, but even your body language, my body language can give us away sometimes of like, uh, hey, I need to share this with you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm not telling you you can necessarily have control of that. Like, like we were talking about eye rolling last night and just like that natural reaction. How does it happen? Like, oh, you said, hmm. Right. Our body language is good because it can sometimes reveal to us where our hearts are at. So that's not to say, change your body language. And some of that might be in your control, and maybe your heart will follow. But I would say, change your heart. 
Are you expecting your brothers and sisters of Christ to come to you with some really challenging thoughts and views about God? I'd say we should be expecting it. And then we can hash those out together. Now, does that mean we can let everything flow? Like, oh, you've got doubts. Great. Oh, how about this? And uh, sexuality or everything else. Like, let's just let it all. It's like, there's plenty of this, as Mark Driscoll pointed out last year. But you have to be firm on what stands here. Like some foundations truth. Because if not, if there's not anything foundational, this is all one big whirlpool and we're all just being flushed. Right? So we do have to get clear on what those things are. And we find that in its most powerful being in Christ. Right? In the person of Christ gives us the most, the most that we can hang on to and grasp to as a truth. So Jesus and John the Baptist both had experiences of pressing into the Father, like, ah, this is tough. We, if you're following along in the church's annual Bible plan reading, we are entering the book of Job. And all these themes are exactly there in Job's life. Uh, Ken brought up Elijah last week, and they're like, all right, here's some major themes of disappointment and expectations. Look at this. In the Bible Project video, as it's laying out Job, just honed in, right in on it. It's like kind of amazing, because I don't think, did you watch that before you taught and like, if you watched it, it's like, oh, these are like such similar themes to what we're looking at right here in the Gospel of Luke, which is, what's your expectation? The thing about Job that's so incredibly challenging to me is that what Tim Keller often says are pat answers to some of these challenging dynamics of God. Like, I believe in the pat answers that Job's friends were giving. And if you cut out the part where God gets after them by like, you lack understanding. You were way too confident in your answers to him about what was really happening here. If you cut that part out, I would say, look, these friends are what the story's about. They're answers to make sense of God. But in reality, they're the antagonist <laughs> in the story. They're giving false assumptions about a God that instead of a humility to say, hmm, maybe God works in ways I don't expect, which can become a slippery slope because then if we say, oh, God can, yeah, there's no truth. Right? That, where does that leave us? But to instead humble ourselves and saying, maybe we are just scratching the surface of God. And do we expect not to be in a situation where Job was? Where it seems the primary purpose of what God allowed Job to happen, and God saying, striking Job with these pains and heartbreaks, was for God to be glorified and show that ultimately God won't be glorified just when things are good on earth that he's much bigger than any of these earthly, worldly expectations or things that we have. I think there's a lot to learn there uh, from, from the story of Job. So what would be the takeaways for myself, for you? Ex examine yourselves. I think it's the secret sauce opposed to anything like, here's the conclusion I want you to take away with. If you are unafraid, because it takes uh, guts to examine all of ourselves honestly, to be asked good questions, if we examine ourselves, um, I think we'll find that we are far greater sinners than we ever dared imagine, as we looked at that quote a few weeks ago. But we are far, um, we are loved far greater than we ever dared imagine as well. That there's a grace and a mercy that's far bigger um, if we're just willing to say, look, I don't have it figured out, and I will always be quick to admit that. And therefore, it will always do number two, create a hunger in me that I will seek God in all things. I will seek him. Because I know how much I need a doctor. I will go to the doctor's house daily and I'm like, I'm here to be checked up again. You were just here this morning. 
I know when I'm back. <laughs> I would love for you to work on me some more. And the father says, that would be my pleasure. I'd like to work with you and wrestle with you on what's happening in this world. Uh, and then finally, as far as like giving you plenty of this, Christ is something we can close our fists around. Like he is. He is not just a good teacher. That would cause him to be just put into a pile of other good teachers that history's given us. He's a savior who had a power over death. Like there's no body in that grave. Therefore, he's more than a teacher. He is a supernatural savior of which speaks directly to whatever pain you and I feel. Whether however small annoyance it was before we came to church this morning or big fundamental philosophical challenges. He says, I have an answer for you. You don't have to have it all here unpacked neatly and digested all at once. Just see that I had a power over death and let that unlock a trust in me that you keep coming back for more so we can figure this all out. Or figure it out enough to, to help us survive to get back to him. And then the rest I, I trust him to take care of. So, three things. Examine ourselves, get hungry, and trust Christ. And then it actually does help me make sense of the tragedy that happened in Texas. Am I happy for it? Not at all. Um, because I know that it might drive me to complete despair. You know, if I had to live through that, I hope it wouldn't, but it might. Um, but I see an answer even in that kind of darkness. I see an answer not in, all right, I need to go treat others better. No, I see an answer in Christ, in Christ alone, with a power over death to give hope even in the darkest situation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have not neglected to address the hurts and pains that we face, including school shootings, um, including uh, the darkness that's hidden um, in our own backwards, or maybe in our own hearts that we can't even see. But you have addressed it all um, through Christ and through your spirit. Let that spirit just come in and transform our hearts. Let us, uh, give us a, a spirit of boldness in you to be willing to examine every part of our hearts. And let it always start with ourselves and not apply this to others, but start with ourselves and, and see that you are good um, when we're willing to, to be bold and let light shine in the dark places. But we need all the help we can get, Father. We know you be there for us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.